Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest story we've been following all week long is that of Hurricane Florence. It's going to be a nightmare storm for the Carolinas and the Mid-Atlantic. It's hitting as we speak. This recap of the podcast is what happened during the week. We'll have a new update on our Monday edition of The Daily Dive but for the meantime, we spoke to Andrew Friedman. He's the science editor at Axios. He's an extreme weather expert. We talked to him about what makes Hurricane Florence so unique and what to watch out for. The wind, the storm surge is going to be crazy. The inland flooding is going to be a real problem. So here's Andrew Friedman. The size of the storm is larger than your average hurricane. So that is having the effect of putting more water in motion in the ocean, which is going to cause a large storm surge when this comes to the coast. And then it's unusual for what's about to happen at, over, inland, or near the coast. And I say that awkwardly because computer models continue to vacillate over whether this thing is going to slow to a crawl just inland or just off the coast or even on top of the coast of North Carolina. And that stalling aspect is going to create a really extended period of hurricane force winds for some, multiple high tide cycles with uh, storm surge flooding, and then also uh, the potential for what really I think is actually worrying worrying meteorologists more, which is the inland rainfall threat. Yeah, officials in the area have ordered more than a million people to evacuate. They say, take this very seriously. You don't want anybody to get caught up in these um, hurricane force winds or even in this flooding. And that does seem to be one of the major concerns. And especially right there in the Carolinas, they have more of a shallower shelf in the ocean that allow a lot of water to build up. And a lot of experts are saying that that flooding is going to be pretty insane. Yeah, the coastal shelf plays a big important role in allowing these storms to build up quite possible that there'll be a 15 to 20 foot storm surge riding on top of the background ocean level. And really any storm surge is more damaging now than it used to be because of sea level rise. But it, there are a lot of vulnerable areas in North and South Carolina, low-lying areas, barrier islands, places that are going to take a real serious beating from this, which is why people are fleeing the water and sheltering from the wind. So you're seeing all these big evacuations at the coast. The concerning thing for me is looking at the latest computer models and seeing that there really is a lot of disagreement about what's going to happen around Friday, Saturday, Sunday timeframe in terms of whether the storm is going to push inland or uh, drift southwest towards South Carolina and Georgia. So people need to be prepared in multiple states for a significant impact. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios Extreme Weather Expert. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As Hurricane Florence continues to barrel towards land, 
Wilmington, North Carolina is going to be a region that's going to expect immediate and long-lasting impacts. We spoke to Alex Riley. He's a reporter for the Wilmington Star News. The eye of the storm is going to hit directly on Wilmington. And he was telling us about the latest with the storm as it was happening. The outer parts of the storm were hitting when we spoke to him. Rain had already started. Some flooding had started. The storm slowed down. And this was one of the main concerns. The storm was going to stall out over land and pour rain there for possibly a complete day. And then the problems after that come, the flooding and the aftermath. So we spoke to Alex about how they're covering it and what's going to happen after the storm passes. I've been through some hurricanes. I'm from South Carolina originally, and we've been in Wilmington now uh, for five years. So I've been through hurricanes before and seen ones that were stronger than others and stuff like that. But Thursday morning, you know, obviously before the hurricane was supposed to hit Thursday night, going out to, to where I was supposed to go to for some news conferences and to talk to some people. And I'm driving through main thoroughfares in town that on a weekday are, you know, bumper to bumper and, and slam full of people. And there was a, a stretch. Uh, today, well, I was the only car on the road for about 30 seconds, and it's an area of town that is jam-packed during any time of the day as long as the sun's up. So it's been a little eerie. It's been kind of a, a ghost town. It seems like uh, a lot of people have heeded the warnings, either gotten inland or hunkered down pretty well or out and about. I mean, I'm, I'm driving up and down the street. I can count on one hand the things that are open. You know, one gas station here, one Chinese restaurant there, one sandwich shop there, and that's about it. A lot of boards on windows, and it's pretty closed up right now. People have done uh, pretty well to get out of town. At least that's the good news that people have gotten out of town, uh, and hopefully it could limit any type of casualties that happen while the storm hits. This is always an interesting question for me because you guys, the reporters, are there giving us the news, letting everybody know what's going on. How are you guys, and how is your newsroom weathering the storm? Good so far. Um, you know, we've got a couple of reporters, quote unquote, out in the field. That doesn't actually mean they're out in the actual field. They're uh, actually at the emergency services centers for a couple of the counties that are uh, here, one in Brunswick County and one in Hanover County, which is where the town of Wilmington is located. And then the rest of us are kind of in the newsroom. I'd say all but maybe two or three staff members are here in the newsroom. And we've brought uh, families and pets and all kinds of stuff. So we're all, uh, all hunkered down and Got lots of food and water, and I think we might play some poker late tonight and hang out and kind of wait for the storm to pass and get back to work um, as soon as we can. So we still have power. Everything's been good so far, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're just prepared, and uh, everybody's here since we're located so they can talk to each other and figure it out as it comes along. Right there in Wilmington, uh, you guys are right in the crosshairs of the eye of Hurricane Florence. Have you guys seen any federal response yet? I, I mean, obviously... The storm has to come and pass before the recovery efforts can begin. Have you seen any federal response yet? Nothing federal yet. I know that President Trump did call the mayor of Wilmington earlier today. Uh, one of our reporters had written something about that. They were, you know, basically uh, the White House was saying, you know, whatever you need, you know, let us know what will be there kind of deal. Uh, once things settle down, the local response has been great. They've done good with the mandatory evacuations in some of the beach communities and the islands. One of the big problems is going to be after the storm obviously hits, there's expected to be tons of flooding. I know that the outskirts of the storm are already hitting and the main brunt of it is going to come later on in the day. What's happened so far? Is it already flooding? What can you tell us about the scene? Not for us. We've done pretty well so far, of course. It's still fairly early. The storm still is a little bit off the coast, but it is obviously headed this way. So we've done pretty well so far. It hasn't been too much rain. I think we'll be okay, uh, but it's, it's going to drop a lot of rain, that's for sure. And, and downtown Wilmington is known to flood. Uh, there are areas in here, obviously, with the beach communities and stuff that are known to flood. Fortunately, 
Uh, there's uh, a lot of high ground, too, a lot of a good solid area. So I think a lot of it will be okay, but uh, there's definitely the threat uh, as you get closer to the coast and closer to the Cape Fear River for some flooding to go on. So we're all keeping an eye on it, and we'll see how it all plays out. Stay safe out there, and thank you for staying on the scene and reporting and letting everybody know what's going on over the course of Hurricane Florence. Alex Riley, reporter with the Wilmington Star News, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. My favorite story of the week has to be this woman out of Oregon named Nancy Crampton Brophy. She unfortunately murdered her husband, but what made it catch national attention was that she was a romance novelist and she had all sorts of novels named like The Wrong Husband, The Wrong Cop. And it was all these struggles that the women had with their current husbands and getting away from them and finding new lovers. And then we found out that she penned an essay called How to Murder Your Husband, in which she talked about all sorts of motives, different weapons that she could use. And she has a bunch of funny little taglines. Like, you know, she's saying, after all, if the murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. And she talks about how she pondered how a murder would occur and how police reaction would be. Well, now she's at the center of this whole thing. The story broke in Oregon. We spoke to... Shane Dixon Kavanaugh, he's a reporter for the Oregonian. They help break this story. And we start right from the beginning with the murder of Nancy Crampton Brophy's husband. A great place to start is if we go back to early June when we first learned about Daniel Brophy's murder, because a killing like that just doesn't happen very often here in Portland, Oregon. Here you have a beloved instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute near downtown Portland found shot multiple times in a kitchen at the school. He soon dies after he is found. And people at the school, both his peers, work colleagues, and the students were completely devastated and thrown for a loop. There were candlelight vigils uh, after his death that were held stories shared, tears shed. And he was well-liked, as you said, hundreds of people turned out to this uh, candlelight vigil for him. Including his wife, Nancy, who spoke very briefly at the vigil as well. But police, after we sort of reported on the initial incidents, we didn't really hear much from police afterwards. And we were sort of here in the newsroom, scratching our heads for a long time, wondering what the heck could have happened in a murder story. We want to turn to motive. And there just wasn't really a clear one. It didn't appear that uh, he was being robbed or anything like that inside the school. We didn't hear anything else sort of from police afterwards until literally last week when um, Portland police dropped a press release at around 9.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night saying that they had arrested and charged his wife with murder. The judge, it's an unusual step, but they sealed the probable cause affidavit in this case at the request of uh, prosecutors. What are you hearing that's the reasoning behind that? We're not hearing much of anything, which just leads us to assume or speculate things or use our best educated guesses. And generally, in a situation like this, we would take a step back and wonder whether or not there might be another person who is tied or connected to this case. That's one possibility for why they would have sealed the PC affidavit. Another reason could simply be, and I'm not suggesting this at all, but it could be possible that police hadn't really finished their investigation completely or had locked it down totally, and they needed to make an arrest because they suspected that their 
primary suspect in this case, Nancy Crampton Brophy, might have been planning to get out of town or something like that. And so they needed to act quickly and try to get her behind bars if they feared that she might try to bolt or something. Let's, and again, I'm, I just want to be clear, we're not suggesting that's the case, but that could be a possibility. Let's talk a little bit more about Nancy Crampton Brophy. Some neighbors that knew the couple even said that it was a little, she was acting weird. As you said, she attended that candlelight vigil. She posted some stuff on Facebook saying, don't contact me. I need to process this whole thing. But a neighbor even said that she didn't show any signs of being upset or sad. And it was, it struck him as very odd. Yeah, you know, that was a neighbor we spoke to the day after her arrest was announced. Hindsight always sees sort of 2020 in these cases, right? A neighbor's recollection might change all of a sudden when they find out that their neighbor is suspected of murdering their spouse. Having said that, you know, the neighbor we did talk to just said that Nancy was acting very strange after her husband's death. In his words, she just wasn't that phased by the whole thing. And also just had seemed that she wasn't particularly bothered by it and was also talking about wanting to get out of the house and move out of the neighborhood. Having said that, I'd also just add that, uh, you know, the neighbors that we did speak to also said that none of them knew the Brophies that well. Let's talk about the big twist in all of this, that she was a romance novelist. She had a bunch of books called like The Wrong Husband or The Wrong Cop and things like that. They were all about women escaping their their lives and, and escaping their husbands and falling in love with other people. And she also had this essay that was called How to Murder Your Husband. This was written, I think, in 2011 or so. It was written many, many years ago. But she talks about different motives that one might have and different tools that you could use to murder your husband. Correct. You know, it was interesting. Again, when the sort of press release with Nancy Brophy's arrest first went out last Wednesday night, we knew early on just by doing sort of your general fact checking that she was a writer. But it wasn't until Thursday morning when I got to the office and started looking into it a little bit more that I discovered that Nancy Brophy was in fact a romance mystery writer where these types of crazy murder plots and sometimes the murdering of a spouse plays a central role in these types of stories. So that was quite surprising and somewhat fascinating to learn. And then I actually was tipped off by somebody that Miss Brophy in 2011 had published this essay that was an essay that was published for other sort of romance and mystery writers getting into the details or getting into the guts of the best way to pull off the murder of one's husband in such books. Right. As she says, I spent a lot of time thinking about murder and consequently about police procedure. And so that's why she went on to write some of this stuff. And it's a funny thing. She says, let me clearly say for the record, I don't like jumpsuits and orange isn't my color. And she locked out. She was in a blue jumpsuit when she went into court. Yeah, here in Multnomah County, which is where Portland's located, we don't have orange jumpsuits when you're jailed and booked. (laughs) One of the other funny things is some of the comments that were left on that essay, uh, you know, I don't know who these people are or whatever, but someone says, you know, really, who hasn't had the stray thought about murdering a spouse or a lover? Someone said, I'd always thought I'd be a knife girl. I love how your mind works. And this goes into what she was writing there. She says there's a lot of motives, financial, lying, cheating husbands. They fell in love with someone else. 
And then she goes into, you know, options to consider your guns, your knives, what kind of strings that, you know, are you strong enough to uh, strangle a person? It was just so weird, all these things and how they connect to, you know, what ended up happening in her own life. The sentence that really jumped out at me in Nancy's 2011 essay on how to murder your husband was this line. But the thing I know about murder is that every one of us have it in him, her when pushed far enough, you know, that's the type of thing that maybe makes some people positive. Right. Speaking from personal experience, don't know if I have that in me. Undoubtedly, prosecutors are looking into her past writings. Who knows if they're using these as possible motives or not until they finally release the affidavit, what they think the motives were. But all this stuff just adds to the bizarre, the oddity of what this story really is. The romance novelist who wrote about these issues, then killing her husband, who was a beloved member of the community, it seemed like. Uh, I want to just stop you right there and say is accused of murdering her husband. There you go. We're innocent until proven guilty. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more twists and turns until they all figure it out. I'm hoping. <laughs> all right. Shane Dixon Cavanaugh, reporter for The Oregonian. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much again for having me. Oh, man, it's such a crazy story. I'm going to bring my producer, Miranda, in for the rest of this conversation. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Hey, Oscar. Let's get a little bit more into the essay she wrote, How to Murder Your Husband. We mentioned all the motives earlier in the interview with Shane, but let's go a little more in depth into those. What were these motives? I read Nancy's like primer for how to murder your husband. And I, this does read to me as a writing exercise because uh -huh. I'm laughing during this whole thing. <laughs> She's pretty funny. This whole story makes me want to go out and buy one of her books. Right. But she says in the opening paragraph, if murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail, which is hysterical. She said she's thought about it a lot. As a writer of these types of stories, she's got a little flow chart, basically, of what she considers to be the top five motives for murdering your husband. And the first one is financial. That's pretty self-explanatory. But she there's a line in here where she says the drawback are police aren't stupid. And especially if you married for money, aren't you entitled to all of it? She says you have to be organized, ruthless and very clear. And from the interview with Shane, when they spoke to neighbors, she literally told a neighbor, I'm one of the suspects. And that pinged in the neighbor's ear as kind of odd. The second motivation is lying or cheating, and those are also crimes of passion. And she's saying typically with those, you stab them with a knife or you bash them in the head, but it's really messy. And who's going to clean it up? For the record, her headline was lying, cheating bastard. Yes. Well, I was trying to clean it up. <laughs> uh, the third reason is falling in love with someone else. And she agrees that usually the financial motivation is there, too. But what's weird is she glopes religion into this section, saying, say your church frowns on divorce. You have to be a widow so that you don't lose standing in the religion. Then she goes on to say, it helps if you're not too bothered by the Ten Commandments. Abuse is the fourth one. And she goes on to say, this one's tough and anybody can claim abuse. What's abuse? She says that this is a good backup motive for if you do get arrested, you can always throw out the abuse card. She says it's typical for abused women to not call 911 after they've lit the house on fire with their husband inside. And number five, uh, it's your profession. And this is the one that's just kind of silly. She says, right. now we're talking. You possess the skill and the knowledge and you can cleanly carry off a hit and walk away. How about these options? Because she goes through all of the murder weapons possible. Guns, obviously, they're loud, messy. She says uh, you got to have a good aim. Knives are super personal and too close up. Blood can get everywhere. She literally says, you. <laughs> right. Uh, using like a, a garrote string or something like that. She's like, you got to have a lot of upper body strength if you want to strangle a person. Heavy equipment, usually involving hitting someone with a baseball bat or a pipe. 
She also details poison, saying that that's the reason why you marry a doctor, so you can have access to pharmaceuticals, so you can later poison them. Easy to obtain, worse off, though, it's easy to trace, so exactly. probably don't use it. Thanks again, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.